You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We are looking this, or not this morning, tonight at Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abraham, or as he's called in this passage, Abram. Uh, In a few chapters, his name will get changed, so I'll probably slip back and forth between Abram and Abraham. It's the same guy, just it tends to, you know, be fluctuated. Uh, So if I say Abram or Abraham, it's the same dude. Um, Here's what Genesis Uh, Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, say about him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oath of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at the beginning of the story of Abraham this this evening, Pray that you would open it to us and help us to see your goodness, your love for us, your generosity, and your call on our lives. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so this is you know, towards the end of the series on Genesis, and that chapter 12 marks a shift in the book of Genesis. Because up until now, we've looked at these kind of big history-encompassing stories creation and fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel, these like origin stories for lots of different uh, human endeavors, for what it means to be human, all of these things. But tonight, we zoom into one person and one family. And the rest of the book of Genesis will, will follow Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph. And we, from this point on, The narrative slows down and it zooms in to one guy, Abram. He's first mentioned in the Bible just a few verses uh, above this at the end of chapter 11. Uh, Most of chapter 11 is a genealogy. It's like a family tree. Uh, We get these scattered throughout the Bible and they trace the lineage of people, uh, trace who is whose grandpa and great-grandpa and all of these things. Uh, And what we hear about Abraham is nothing that remarkable. Um, all we're told about him is that he's married to Sarai and that they settled in some place called Haran or Haran where his father Terah died. And that's it. 
We know from later in the Bible, from the book of Joshua, that before what we read, there's not that much special about Abraham. He's just kind of your average pagan. Uh, In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, this is God speaking, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. And the implication is that Abraham was just, before God called him, just like everybody else, just like the people at, at Babel who had been scattered, who were trying to make a name for themselves, who would have worshipped whatever they felt like worshipping. And then out of the blue, we get chapter 12. God comes to him and he calls him away from all of that and he calls him to himself. And he promises him some really surprising things that we'll look at more carefully in a minute, but he promises that he'll become a great nation that God will make his name great, that through his family, God will bless the whole world. Down in verse 7, he promises to give him a land, a home, right? Your descendants will live in this land. And before we dive into the particulars of these promises, I, I think we have to stop and look again at the grace of God, right? Here it is again, as it has been throughout this series. Grace is on every page of the Bible. We saw God's grace to Adam and Eve, And that even after they sinned, even after mankind fell, God provides for them. We saw God's grace to Cain in protecting him, even after he murdered his brother. We see God's grace to Noah, right? We we saw um, God giving Noah favor before Noah had done anything in service to God. And we see it here. Abraham has done nothing of note for God. At this point, he's an idol worshiper. He's not listed as particularly powerful or wise or influential. But here comes God blessing him like crazy before Abraham even lifts a finger. This is grace, right? The unmerited, unlooked for, undeserved blessing of God to his people. It comes out of nowhere, unexpected, and crashes into his life and interrupts his course and his plans for something even better. Because what does God say to Abraham? What does he promise him? What does he call him to? First, what does God call Abraham to? Look again at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Uh, In short, Abram doesn't know. right? God just says, Hey, pack up your stuff and leave. Come follow me. right? And he doesn't give an address. Right, remember a few months ago when a lot of us went to fall conference and be like me saying, hey, come to this retreat, come to this conference. It'll be really great. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to meet at the Bell Tower Friday to all carpool out there together. And you ask, where are we going? And I say, just get in the car and drive towards Asheville. I'll text you the address in a little bit. You say like, why don't you just text me the address now and I'll put it in this fancy GPS that all phones have now and I'll know where I'm going. But this is what God does for Abraham. He just calls him and he says, go, pack up, leave, come to me. But he doesn't call him to complete uncertainty. God makes him some promises to Abraham. Uh, It's hard to see, and we might miss it because the Bible doesn't put these verses in bold or underline them or put them in a different color. But uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible, not just the book of Genesis. Listen again. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God telling Abraham what his family exists for. Like this is God letting Abraham into the purpose of the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New. First, God tells him, I will make you a great nation. And the great there refers to, to size, not necessarily to quality, right? Like that's a great big cheeseburger, not they make great cheeseburgers, right? There, there will be a lot of you, right? You will be a great nation. Abraham's family is going to be big. And second, I will bless you and make your name great. Unlike Babel, which tries to make a name for itself, God is going to make Abraham's name great. And even more, he will bless him. This isn't necessarily material things, though it doesn't exclude that. Blessing in the Bible is, it includes happiness, but it's more this picture of fullness and satisfaction. Again, it can include material things, but not by themselves, right? Like having stuff doesn't satisfy, but it can be a means to happiness and satisfaction, right? More than that, blessing involves community. It involves that even, even more, that, that the most of all, a relationship with God. Remember, we're made to imitate him. We saw this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. We're made in his image, and we're made to imitate him. And so the only true blessing, the only lasting happiness and satisfaction comes from a relationship with the God who made us. And God promises Abram that his presence will be with him, right? That that blessing will be his. So he'll make his name great. He'll make him into this big nation of populous people, and he will bless him. But look at the end of verse 2 again. So that you will be a blessing. Abraham, Abram, in other words, is a conduit, right? He's not this receptacle of blessing, right? It's more like the, the rain barrels that we have at our house, right? That are bone dry right now because it's smoky outside, it's dry, like it hasn't rained in a long time. But we have these rain barrels where it, when it rains, the rain flows down into our gutters and fills up these rain barrels. And from that, we water our garden, we water our chickens, right? They're, they're receptacles that aren't meant just to sit there, but to be spent for something else. And that's what God's telling Abram that he is. I'm going to pour my blessing onto you. I'm going to shower you with my goodness so that it can flow out of you to other people, right? It, he's not to hoard the blessing for himself. He's to pass it along to others, and verse 3 expands on that, that this blessing is supposed to go to all the families of the earth. Through this one man and his family, all the peoples of the earth are to be blessed. And again, this is God telling Abraham what his mission is on earth, what his family's purpose is on earth. This is what the people of God in the Old Testament were for. God would increase them in number and bless them with his presence so that they could, like priests, pass on this blessing to their neighbors. This, this blessing and this call, uh, this identity, gets passed on uh, several generations later in the book of Exodus. Uh, in Exodus 19, after God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, uh, the nation has become great. There are a lot of them. 
God brings them to himself, and he says this to them in Exodus 19, uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, Now, therefore, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God tells the people that you will be a kingdom, a whole nation of priests set apart, right? Holy. And what do priests do? They act as this intermediary between God and other people. And so what's the point of a kingdom of priests? That this nation would act as an intermediary between God and other nations to his goodness, to testify to his love, and to bless them with his presence through their being, like just being on earth. And what's wild is that when you get to the New Testament, in the book of 1 Peter, he's writing to a church that is undergoing persecution and and trying to figure out who their identity is. And Peter writes this to the church in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? This mission that God is going to bless his people so that they can in turn bless the world is still present for the New Testament church. Right? Peter is quoting Exodus chapter 19 and saying what was just as true of Israel after they had come out of slavery is is true of you, church. You now are this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, We've talked in past weeks about in-shaped religion versus U-shaped grace. And I hope as I've talked about it over and over, it's like started to make sense and sink in a little bit. Um, that kind of these two competing understandings of how God works in our lives, right? In-shaped religion is we offer something to God and then he in turn blesses us, right? That's what we default to, how we assume that God works, but it's not what the Bible testifies to over and over again, right? What the Bible teaches is U-shaped grace, that God's blessing comes down first without us earning it, without us asking for it even, and we respond in gratitude as we're transformed by that grace, We respond with good works, with obedience, with putting sin to death, with saying no to ungodliness. But sometimes that response can be hard to figure out, right? Like we know we're supposed to respond to God's goodness in some way, but is it like, is it just going to church and reading my Bible? Um, Is it just helping out other believers and people who I like? Uh, Is it just keeping the commandments? Well, yes, but I think Genesis 12 adds to that picture. Right? One of the reasons that we receive that grace is that we might be a blessing to the peoples of the world. Right? That God might bless the world through the people of God. In other words, our enjoyment of God's grace should result in the good of our neighbors. Right? A totally private faith was never an option on the table for God's people. Right? Like God says, it's not an option for you to be Christian over here and like kind of pretend that you're not over here. 
right? Because your Christian faith is supposed to impact the people that you spend your time with, right? God creates his people so that those who are not his people would be brought in and become his people. This doesn't mean that we only ever talk about the gospel or Jesus or the Bible, right? We ought to have interest in God's world, not just God. We ought to be interested in people simply because they are people made in God's image, not just as projects or potential converts, right? I'm not saying that you should make every conversation evangelistic. But if you're a Christian, have you ever had an evangelistic conversation? Part of the purpose of you receiving and enjoying grace is that that might spill over into the lives of the people around you. This also means that we ought to be rubbing shoulders with people who aren't believers. Again, not as projects or targets for evangelism, but the point of God's people was never to huddle together and shut out the outside world. Yes, we want our closest relationships to be with believers. Yes, we're saved as individuals and put into a Christian community. But again, part of the reason that we've received grace is that it might flow through us to those around us, that we might be a blessing. And remember, the key component of blessing is relationship with God, right? Part of the reason that we have received grace and part of a grateful response to that grace is that others might be closer to God because they stand close to us, right? That God's grace flows through us into their lives. I think there's a million different ways that this can look. And rather than going through a bunch of different examples, uh, I'm going to encourage you to talk about them with one another and talk about them with, like, me, Kate, Jesse, Matthew. Um, I hope that you'll talk about them in your community groups, in your dorm room, over a meal this week. Uh, but I, I want to kind of make a hard shift and talk about another topic that this passage brings up. Uh, and it's a question that I, I think, if you're a Christian, you have asked at least once, if not a million times, how do I know God's will for my life? Right? I think this topic brings, or this passage brings this topic up um, because, like, it's so clear for Abraham, right? Like, God says to Abraham, do this, right? This is my will for you. And then, like, down in verses 6 and 7, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, here's what I'm going to do for you. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Noah, where God tells him very specifically, build a boat, Make it this long, make it this wide, make it this tall, make it like out of this kind of wood. And he just like lays out, here is my will for, I don't know how long it took to build the boat, the next three years of your life, right? Like Noah and Abraham don't have to guess at what God's will is. And we continue to see things like this in the Old Testament, right? Moses gets called to God out of a burning bush. The prophets have these visions and clear calls to ministry, Samuel, if you know his story, is sleeping in the temple as a little kid, and he hears a voice, and after a while they figure out that like, it's God speaking to him and calling him to himself. But what about us? Right? If we talk about hearing voices, we sound like crazy people. Um, how do we hear God's direction? How do we discern his will for our lives? It's different, certainly, than what we see in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews acknowledges this shift, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? So out of a burning bush, out of visions, out of dreams, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, right? So there's this sense in that on on this side of Jesus, the full and final revelation of God has come in the person and work of Christ, right? As it's testified to in the New Testament, right? And so one, one way to think about this is like, how do we discern God's will for our lives? Well, like we don't need to to, to rely on burning bushes or on fleeces that are going to be dry or wet or visions or audible voices. All we need is his word. You say, that's great, but the Bible doesn't tell me what I should major in, right? The Bible doesn't tell me whether or not I should ask this person out or whether or not I should say yes when this person asks me out, right? The Bible doesn't tell me what job to take or what city to live in or who to room with next semester and on and on. Like, we would prefer something like what Abram has, right? Where God shows up and says, here's what I want you to do. Um, it's this question that, that plagues a lot of Christians and that, that gives us a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, and, and I want to talk about this issue for a few minutes. Um, I, I think, to start off, I think we have a, a misconception about what it means to figure out God's will. Here's how one author articulates the way that we can often think about it. He says, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he's laid it out for us to follow, and our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we'll receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we'll experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. But if we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. My guess is that that's how many of us think about God's will for our life. It's a specific course that we're meant to take or follow or will make ruin of our lives if we don't. I want to suggest that that view of God's will doesn't really fit with what Scripture says, and and it doesn't hold up to the kinds of things that we want to know, right? the decisions we look for God's will in. First, it, it doesn't fit with what Scripture says about God's will. God's will is not this mysterious thing in Scripture, right? There are very many places in the Bible where God's will is clearly laid out, Right? Think of things like the Ten Commandments. It's God's will that you would be honest. It's his will that you would not steal or kill people. Right? Think of things like the fruit of the Spirit. It's God's will that you would grow in patience, in kindness, in being loving and self-controlled. Think of all the instructions given to the early church in the letters of the New Testament. Right? It's God's will that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would forgive one another, that we would encourage one another. It's not a mystery in the Bible, right? Paul, even at one point, writes, this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? That you would grow in holiness, that you would come to look more and more like Jesus. So first, that understanding of God's will being this mystery that we have to figure out doesn't make sense with the way the Bible talks about God's will. Because the Bible is very quick to say, this is what God's will is for you. Live in this way. 
Live, live like Jesus does in these areas. But that understanding of God's will also doesn't fit with what the Bible says about the Christian life. You know, we think that if we walk in God's will, we'll experience happiness and success, that we can't fail, and that if we don't walk in God's will, we'll experience disappointment and hardship. But what does the Bible say about the Christian life? That hardship is how we grow. That suffering is the way to glory. This is how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. I mean, if there was ever anyone who perfectly followed God's will, it's Jesus Christ, and that led him to a cross. He was described as a man of sorrows. We want an easy life, and we think that if we can figure out God's will, that we'll get it, right? That we'll be safe and secure and happy all the time. But God calls us to a holy life. So often his will for us is not what we would call easy or comfortable or safe. And finally, an observation about the kinds of things that we ask God's will for. We ask him his will in things like, who should I date or marry? What kind of job should I take? What should I major in? Right? And in general, these are amoral questions. Not immoral questions, right? Not immoral as things that are clearly wrong. Amoral is just like, it doesn't fall into the categories of right or wrong. Right? It's not holier to major in accounting than it is in natural resource management. It's not more Christian to major in biblical studies than it is to major in Russian literature. And it's not better to live in Asheville, Raleigh, Greenville, Denver, or London. Okay? Like, these are amoral questions. There might be moral things that get brought into that, right? God does reveal his will and that believers ought to marry other believers. So it's foolish to seriously date someone who's not a Christian. God reveals his will and that we ought to be connected to a worshiping community. So it might be foolish to take a job where we aren't able to participate in worship or move to a town without a viable church option. But a lot of times those things just aren't there. They're amoral questions that don't have a clear right or wrong attached to it. So again, right, stop bearing the lead, Andrew. How do I choose? How do I know if God is calling me to something? Well, there are some things we can do. We're not just like, called to throw up our hands or like roll a die and just see what number comes up, right? We don't let our Bible fall open to a random page and see if something there has anything to say about our situation. Really, what it comes down to is that God is calling us to follow him in wisdom. First, wisdom from prayer. In James chapter 1 verse 5, he writes this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you're facing a decision tonight about what classes to register for, right, or what major to declare, or who to live with next semester, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God for wisdom? He gives generously to all who ask. For, and then we talk about wisdom from the word, right? Like, like the questions about what, if anything, does the Bible have to say about your decision? Is this job going to push you to holiness? Is this relationship going to encourage your growth as a Christian? But we also seek wisdom from others, right? Wisdom from other believers and wisdom from other people, even non-believers who just know us well, right? Have you asked for advice? Many times other people will have insight and experience and helpful questions to ask you to help you think about your situation, 
Right? This is one of the reasons why like everybody who does announcements up here, I have them say they're major because these are upperclassmen. And if you're thinking about that major, you should ask them about it. Right? What professors am I going to learn something from? What, like, what classes am I going to want to have like nothing else around because it's going to kill me? Right? What, like, what are the pit, pitfalls? What are the advantages? What are the different experiences that I'll go through? We get wisdom from prayer, we get wisdom from the word, and we get wisdom from others. But there's something else that, that I feel like sometimes we just forget to add in, and that's like some sanctified common sense, right? Just some basic questions that we can ask about decisions that we're making and trying to discern whether or not God is calling us to something. Uh, and I'm, I'm getting the, these three categories from, I don't know who Kate's professor was, but one of her seminary professors, you can ask her for the name later. Um, the first question can I do this? Do I have the ability? Right? If you're thinking about majoring in accounting and you suck at math, that's a bad idea. Right? If you're not gifted with words, you probably shouldn't be a writer. Right? Basically, has God gifted me with some natural ability for this thing that I'm thinking about doing? If not, you're going to experience a lot of frustration as you pursue that thing. Okay? First question is ability. Second question is affinity. Do I want to do this, right? Like if you hate heights, you probably shouldn't become one of those people who climbs trees with spikes on their shoes and a chainsaw on their belt, like to, to hang up in a canopy and cut limbs off, right? That would be a bad idea, right? E even if you feel like, man, I feel like maybe I'm called to do this for some reason, if you're gonna like have a panic attack every day on your way to work, it's a bad idea. You shouldn't do it. Right? If you go stir crazy inside for long stretches, maybe look for a field or a job that's going to put you in contact with people or put you outside or both. Right? Basically, has God given me a desire to do this? And this is one of those questions where we can feel guilty about actually asking it. We feel like it's holier to do something that we don't want to do. But God has given us like desires and longings that can push us in a direction to help us see what he's calling us to. One of the questions that I love asking students as I'm getting to know you guys after asking like what are you majoring in is why are you majoring in that? Like what made you want to do that? Because so often it's a window into the people in your life that have made an impact, the, the experiences that God has brought you through that, that's made you want to fix something about the world, or serve in some particular area. And it's beautiful to see the way that God has worked in your life to give you a desire and a passion for something. That's a good question to ask if we're wondering if God is calling us to do something. Is there a desire that I have to do this? Or am I just going to hate going to work every day? So, ability, affinity, and finally, is there opportunity to do this? Right? Is there, is there access to this thing for me? Right? If you want to live in a small mountain town, is anyone there going to hire you to do the job you're training for? Right? Does that career exist in Dillsboro? If you want to live in the city, are you going to be able to afford it? Right? If you're going to be like a singer-songwriter and move to Nashville, like what other skill do you have that's going to let you put food on the table while you make a name for yourself in the music industry? Basically, have circumstances that you can't control dictated to some degree your options? I want to give a couple examples of what this might look like in practice. Uh, let's start um, with something that maybe like everybody in this room is going through. Who are you going to room with next year? All right, start with roommates. 
What kind of wisdom does Scripture give? Are these potential roommates going to encourage me towards holiness or to the opposite? Right? Is this location that I'm going to live in, is it going to make it like, am I going to use it as an excuse not to go to my morning class? Or is this location going to help me be a better student? Have you prayed about it? Have you asked other people for counsel, like other wise people that God has put in your life? And then what does your sanctified common sense say, right? Is there ability? Can you afford to live there, right? Like you probably shouldn't live in a place that you're going to have to take out crazy amounts of loans for. Is there affinity? Do you want to live with those people? And is there opportunity? Do they want to live with you, right? Like has somebody asked you like, hey, we have this room. Do you want to live with us? If so, like, that's a third of figuring out God's will. There's opportunity. And then you ask, do I want to live with these people? Can I afford to live with these people? And if all lights are green, go for it, right? That's all you need to figure out God's will. When I was finishing up the RUF internship, I knew that I wanted to go to seminary because I knew I was being called to be a pastor. And I I looked at seminaries like Covenant, which is out in St. Louis, and Westminster, which is up in Pennsylvania, and RTS, which was in Charlotte. Uh, And in Charlotte, Charlotte happened to be where my parents lived. And they had a room that I could live in for free. And Charlotte happened to be where my dad owned a business and had flexible hours, and I could work for him. And Charlotte also happened to offer a full scholarship for seminary for RUF interns. And so with a free place to live, a job, and no tuition to pay, God's will was really clear, right? I should probably go to seminary in Charlotte. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out process that we go through, but just using our sanctified common sense to see, like, what opportunities has God laid on the table that I am gifted for and that I want to take, right? One more quick application. Dating, okay? Guys, say you're thinking about asking someone out. Let's run through this rubric to see if it might be a wise course of action. First, some wisdom questions, right? Scripture, again, would say that believers ought to only seriously date other believers, So, is the person you're crushing on a Christian? Okay? That's number one. Community. Have you asked your friends if if they think that you're in a good place to be dating? Right? Are you mature enough, responsible enough, self-controlled enough? Um, Or do you need to work on yourself a little bit before you subject someone else to you? Okay? And prayer. Pray about it. Okay? And then, some sanctified common sense questions. Right? Assuming that it's someone in particular, right? that you're not just like lonely and want to date anybody, but like there's someone in particular that you want to date, okay, yes, there's affinity there, okay? So that checks that box out. But then there's like the ability, can I do this? Does your schedule allow for it, right? Or are you in anatomy and organic chemistry this semester? Maybe don't start a relationship right before exams if you're in those classes, right? Hang on, take a breath, wait for January. And then finally, opportunity. And this is going to sound callous, this is going to sound cold, but is there reciprocation there, right? Because part of the opportunity of dating is do they like you, right? If not, there you go. That's your answer. Drop it. Go back to studying. Don't pull out the God told me that we should be dating or I just really feel called to date you. It's cringy. It's wrong. It's annoying. If you were called to date her, she would, she'd be checking the ability, affinity, and opportunity boxes too, okay? I know those two examples are pretty reductionistic, right? They're not going to be quick conversations. Prayer is not just a formality we go through. But 
But I want you to see that this approach to discerning God's will for our life is a lot more freeing. And it's a lot more honoring to who God is. Right? If God's will is a mystery that we have to figure out so that he'll bless us, aren't we back to in-shaped religion? Right? And, and doesn't that make God out to be a little bit devious? Like, I'm only going to bless you if you figure out the perfect combination of, like, this major, this job, graduating at this time. But this approach that uses God-given wisdom and God-given scripture and God-given community and God-given common sense honors both him and his generosity and honors who he's made us to be. Right? People, real people with real choices and intentionality and desires and giftings. What a gift that God has given us such freedom in following him, right? That he lays these options on the table and he says, what excites you? What do you want to do? How have I gifted you? Run towards that as you're able to. And he gives us such resources in his word and prayer and one another. Let's use them to try and discern God's will with wisdom rather than like waiting for some sign or, or for some word from outside or a burning bush or a fleece or a message in the clouds, or whatever else it is, the silly things that we do to try and figure out God's will for our life. One last thing, and then we'll be done. Uh, back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, really Romans chapter 5. Um, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And so it's really interesting in the book of Romans, when Paul is, is going through his kind of summary of theology, and he starts talking about the salvation by grace alone thing, uh, one of the things that he does is he goes all the way back to Abraham to show that Abraham receives this call on his life, right? God says, pick up everything, come follow me, and he makes all these, these promises to him. And Abraham believes God, right? He, he trusts God, and he picks up and he goes, right? And what Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Right? And if it worked that way for him, right, like the first Jew, the, the like granddaddy of them all, if, that were, if salvation worked that way for him, then it works that way for us too, right? Believing God and his promises, that he will not leave us or forsake us, that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to cover all of our sins, that he loves us, that he won't leave us, and that he's coming back again. Right? If we believe him, then that is credited or counted to us as righteousness, and we belong to him. We'll talk more next week about how the story of Abraham points us to Genesis, uh, and re- or not Genesis, to Jesus, um, the story of Abraham's in Genesis, uh, and how Adam and Eve and Noah uh, and Abraham all kind of like push us towards a fuller understanding of the cross. Uh, but for tonight, the example of Abraham, that God gives him this great call, and Abraham says, okay, I'll follow you. And that God looks at him and says, you're mine, you're righteous, I'm going to do great things in you and through you is a beautiful picture for us and for our lives. Let's pray.